Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I, we have four kids, which is awesome and crazy and chaotic and a constant adventure, but, but it is awesome. But as a parent, whether you're a, a Christian or not, you, you worry about your kids and you wonder, how can I set my kids up for success in life? However you imagine that. Like, how, what, how can we uh, instill the right things in our kids so that they will not only survive, but they will thrive in this world? It's, it's, it's like we're wondering, like, what is that, that secret rep- recipe? What is the secret ingredient that we can give to our kids? And then that's going to work. That's going to make sure they're okay. It's actually a question that for, for many, many years, psychologists have been um, investigating. And they've, they've done a lot of research and trying to discern what is the secret of success? What is it that makes one person overcome incredible odds and struggle no matter what and, and come out on top and succeed while another person encountering the same obstacles, the same struggles or odds, crashes and burns and ends in failure? Like what, what, what is it? And if you read a lot of the contemporary literature today, uh, psychologists have a lot of different theories on this. And you'll find books that talk about the importance of, of passion, uh, of being conscientious, of humility, of grit, of having the right mindset. These are all good things. One that I find I'm curiously lacking, but seems to me crucial to success in life is hope. And it doesn't take a psychologist to, to realize that hope, without hope, we're lost. I mean, without hope, you've got nothing. You don't even get out of bed without hope. When you have hope, man, anything is possible. When you have hope, you will continue to struggle and to fight no matter what the odds say are against you. When you have hope, you can stand in the darkest of night and with expectation watch for the rising sun when you have hope. But without hope, you're, you're, you're left with hopelessness. It is, it is despair. Maybe some of you have experienced something like that in your life. Seasons where, where it just felt like there was no hope. And you understand all too well how impossible life feels in that time. See, the great enemy of, of hope is fear. Because it's fear that drives us to despair, just as, as hope guides us to joy. And so hope and fear, in, in a sense, have this like internal struggle within each one of us, fighting and jockeying for position. And maybe you can even think of a time where you stood on a knife's edge and you wondered which would win. Would it be fear or would it be hope? And you feel yourself drifting towards fear, but then hope pulls you back. Or maybe you're trying so desperately to hope, but there's this nagging fear that you can't seem to escape. We often think of love as the opposite of fear, but, but actually love is what drives out fear because love is what gives us an unshakable foothold, a stronghold for hope. If you're a Christian, then God's perfect love is like this stake driven in the ground from which love launches its offense against fear and it gives us hope. It's, it's God's perfect love that assures us that our hope is not in vain. And where we get into trouble, though, is when we lose sight of God's perfect love and out of fear begin to grasp and to flail for anything we can find. The fear begins to creep in and love seems distant. 
And so we begin to reach and to grasp for anything that will hold fear at bay, anything that will keep us from falling into despair. Uh, when I was uh, very young, I was about four years old, my mom enrolled me in a swim class. And uh, I didn't really like the water very much at that time. I, I wasn't very comfortable in it. But she, she made me do it anyway. And uh, she, she put me in the pool and the instructor came over and got me and she was an older woman. And she'd been doing it for many, many years and so she grabbed me and she said, hey, I want you to, to go under the water. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. And so she took me and she forced me under the water. I don't think you can do that today. <laughs> Probably go to jail. And she held me there for a few seconds. And I know in, in, in terrified four-year-old mind, under the water, a few seconds feels like an eternity, right? And so I'm under the water and I remember this vividly, just thrashing around and just trying to grab at anything because just desperation, you want to get some air. I don't want to be under here. And I remember there was this little girl sitting on the steps and she was wearing a little pink uh, uh, swimsuit and had one of those little pink um, uh, skirts, you know, like little girls' bathing suits have. And when you're desperate, you'll grab at anything. <laughs> so I reach out and I grab this and I pull her down. It doesn't help. The teacher still has me. And now I'm in trouble because I pulled this other girl down. They didn't work out. See, when, when we've lost hope and fear creeps in and it, it reaches that, that volume that we can't seem to shut it out, then we will grasp, we will flail as something, anything that will hold fear at bay. As the saying goes, a drowning man will grasp at a straw. And that's what we do. And therein lies the danger because we'll grab the wrong thing. Fear will push us to hope in the wrong things. In Isaiah 7, uh, this passage I want to look at this morning, we meet a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz is a terrible king. He leads the nation of Judah to, um, into idolatry, to reject the worship of the true God, Yahweh. And not only that, but he actually burns his own children in uh, sacrifice to these false gods. I mean, he's a terrible king. He's a horrible king. And in a moment of crisis, he puts his hope and the hope of the nation in the wrong thing to disastrous results. So if you follow along in Isaiah 7, verse 1, this is what it says. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, I don't know how you actually pronounce that. In my world, it just rhymes with jambalaya. Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. They're terrified as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So here's what's happening. Um, Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember, the kingdom used to be united under David and then his son Solomon. But after that, there was a terrible civil war. And the kingdom was split in two, the south and the north. And so the south is Judah and the north is Israel. And so when it talks about Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, it's talking about Israel. And Aram there just reads Syria, which was just a little bit further to the north. And so Ahaz has a huge, tremendous uh, political and military problem. That Judah is under attack from two kings that have teamed up. The kings of Israel and Syria. 
And so he's terrified. What are we gonna do? They're gonna come, they're gonna destroy us, they're gonna kill me, they're gonna put someone else on the throne. What is a king to do? And the people are terrified. And so God, even though Ahaz is a terrible king because God is a gracious and merciful God who cares for his people, he sends his prophet Isaiah with a message. This is what he says. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field and say to him there, listen to this message, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. In other words, there's just a lot of smoke. It's just, it's just smoke. Don't worry about it. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Verse five. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. In other words, who cares? It's just resin. It's nobody. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. I don't remember his name. He's so insignificant. In other words, you don't need to worry about these guys. They're nothing that threatens the Lord. So here's God's message. Keep calm and hope in me. That's it. Keep calm, don't panic, hope in me. Because whatever those two nations are threatening, it's not going to happen. But notice there's a warning here as well. The end of verse seven, excuse me, verse nine. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. See, God knows the heart of Ahaz. And he knows the heart of his people. He knows the fear that they have. And God knows that out of that fear, Ahaz will be tempted to do something incredibly foolish. And so he's telling him, listen, Ahaz, this is your moment. Okay, don't give in to fear. Don't allow fear to rule over you. Don't let fear push you to put your hope in the wrong thing. But that's just what Ahaz does. We won't look at it, but if you read the historical accounts, Ahaz goes to the house of the Lord and he, he takes the treasure there and then he gets the treasure from his own house and he pays them in tribute to Assyria to buy Assyria's protection. And so instead of trusting in the Lord God, and putting his hope in the Lord God to save him. Instead, in light of these two bully nations, he makes a deal with the devil. And he throws his lot in with the biggest, baddest bully of them all, the king of Assyria. See, hope, excuse me, fear, will push you to put your hope in the wrong things. Now, before he does this, though, God makes... Ahaz, an unbelievable offer. It's an incredible offer. Listen to this. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, God says to Ahaz, try me. Try me. I'm, gonna get, I'm willing to give you a sign, and I'm not even gonna tell you what it is. You pick. 
Ahaz, what's it gonna take? What kind of sign do you need so that you'll know not to put your hope in Assyria, but instead to hope in me? Like, what kind of sign? What's it gonna take? I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Name your sign. Can you imagine this for a second if God came to you and asked you this question? What if God showed up this week to you and he said, Bill, what's it gonna take? What sign is it gonna take for, for you not to put your hope in your career or in your 401k? Like, what's it gonna take? Because here, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm open for business. Or, or he goes to somebody else and he says, Jane, what, what's it gonna take that you don't put your hope in your husband or your family? Not your ultimate hope, but you put your hope in me. What, what kind of sign is it gonna take? Because I'm listening. Like, how far would you go? Like, I'm thinking like flying camels, you know? Maybe the sun, like a comet across the sky or spinning around the earth or a lightning bolt frozen in midair you could grab. How about that, God? How about that for a sign? But Ahaz doesn't play this game. He says, no thanks. Can you imagine that? Verse 12, but Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds so holy. No, no, far be it for me to put the Lord God to a test. Please. He's pulling the oldest trick in the book. He's taking the very words of God and he's twisting them and throwing them back in the face of God. See, Ahaz doesn't want to hear from God because Ahaz already has his plan laid out. He's already determined in his heart what he's going to do, so he doesn't want to hear it. And then, then, not only that, but to feel good about himself and to look spiritual to everybody else, he says, oh, listen, I'm quoting scripture. We need to be really careful about this, church. Because as Christians, we're really good at this. In fact, we're better at this than anybody because it's our Bible. That we come to God's word and instead of, of coming humbly before it and saying, okay, God, speak to me and correct me. Show me what it is to have a heart after your own heart. Instead, we come to it with our own preconceived notions about what he's going to say or what we want him to say, about how I want to live my life. And then I take scripture and I use it and it, lo and behold, it agrees with me. Incredible. Every time. By the way, this is how the Holy Catholic Church could justify the not-so-holy crusades. This is how the church in the South could rationalize slavery. This is how in the church today, there's a lack of repentance because we have become so adept at taking God's word and making sure that it aligns with our expectations and what we want. It's why so many of us can find ways to justify and to rationalize Lack of forgiveness, lack of compassion, lack of love, hate, greed. And then we can feel spiritual about it. We still look good, we sound good. See, it's really a form of self-deception. It's, it's taking God's word and using it in such a way that then I can look at myself in the mirror and I can say, man, look at me, look how much I love Jesus. You know what the problem with self-deception is? There's only one person deceived. And it ain't God. See, God's not, God's not buying this. He's not being taken in by this. He's not like, whoa. And he's not amused. He doesn't think this is funny. Look at what he says through Isaiah to Ahaz. Verse 13. 
Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? That's bad enough. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim, remember Israel, broke away from Judah. It's a devastating time. He says it's gonna be, you haven't seen anything like it since then. Why? He will bring the king of Assyria. So this passage um, is incredibly complex and it is notoriously vague. And if you read commentaries and you study up on it, you'll discover that there are, are pretty much as many theories of how to interpret this, how to use it as there are scholars talking about it. Now, that being the case, I just want to lay that out there, okay? And I don't have time to give you the number of disclaimers that I would like in, in dealing with this passage. It's very difficult. It's very complex. But if you grew up in the church, one thing you do know is that when you get to the, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew looks back at these verses and he, he uses them and says, this is a prophecy of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. In fact, we read those verses earlier, James did, in the service. Okay? Now, at the same time, Hebrew scholars will point out that this word for virgin is more often used for a young woman of, of marriageable age. And she could be married, maybe she's just old enough to be married, she might be pregnant, she might not be, we don't really know, it's very vague. And so most scholars, I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, most scholars believe that it is more likely that this sign that Isaiah speaks of in this context, and context matters, remember? We don't get to just take verses out and use them however we want and put them back, back excuse me. Okay, so in this context, this sign for Ahaz is not a miraculous virgin birth. Rather, he is most likely referring to simply a woman who's standing nearby who Ahaz can see in that moment because the sign's for him and for the people standing right there. And so he's saying, hey, Ahaz, here's what's gonna happen. You see this woman right here? By the time she has a son and names him Ishmael, or excuse me, Ishmael, Emmanuel, that's a different passage. Emmanuel, two things are gonna happen. These two countries that are threatening you, they're gonna be long gone, but also you will have set in motion events that will lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile for people. Now, before you get upset with me, and you're like, man, Lucas doesn't believe that Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. Yes, I do. Please don't email me. Yes, I do. But the purpose of a sign is for its audience. The purpose of the sign in that immediate context, remember context matters, is for Ahaz and for the people around him. So that God is in effect saying to them, listen, Ahaz, you are not putting your hope in me. And because of that, bad things are going to happen. And when they happen, you will remember this sign of this woman and her son and you will know that you put your hope in the wrong king. Tracking with me? 
And if you read the historical accounts, this is exactly what happens. Because Ahaz, in giving his hope to the king of Assyria, he not only effectively bankrupts the nation, but also he subjugates them to the power of Assyria. And he sets in motion what will ultimately lead to their destruction and their exile. See, fear will push us to put our hope in the wrong things. And get this. Stay with me here. Most often when we are afraid, where it pushes us is to put our hope in earthly power. Because power says, if you have me, you can't lose. Power says, if you have me, if you have enough of me, power, then you don't have to be afraid. When I was uh, 19, I went to visit Washington, D.C. for the first time. And uh, I, I got the opportunity to um, basically shadow a friend of mine. His name was Keith, and uh, he was a congressional intern. Keith the intern. And uh, I spent just a day with him just walking around. And Keith, man, he looked the part. He acted the part. He still works in politics, actually. And uh, he's, he's got his suit on, and, and he's got his badge and uh, we're not just, I'm not just getting a tour, you know, like I'm walking the halls and we're going from different office to office and, and talking to con congressmen and passing on information and there's deals being done and you're seeing all of this and suddenly I'm walking through and it strikes me, my gosh, they're running the country from here. That's power. I mean, you could feel it. Like two, two congressmen, two senators have a passing conversation that could affect a, a farmer in Iowa. Like that's incredible. It blew my mind. There's decisions being made on the floor of, of people just sitting there, very few even in the room, based on some bill that's gonna affect a, a rancher in Wyoming or a businessman in Dallas. I thought, man, this is power. And you could taste it. I mean, it was in the air. Remember, I'm not walking around with the president. I'm with Keith, the intern. And still, it was so thick. And I realized, I get it. I get why power is so enticing because you just feel like if I had this kind of power, man, nothing could touch me. If I had this kind of power, I'd always win. If I had this kind of power, I would never have to fear again. This is why politics are so seductive because politics are all about power. And we believe that power is the remedy for fear. This is why in our political system, so much of it is based and run off of, of fear. Why, why a politician will tell you, listen, you gotta vote for me, you have to give me your hope. Give me the power, because if that guy over here is elected, the world is over, all is lost. The sun will burn out. But if you give me your hope, if you put your hope in me, if you will trust in me, I will save you, I will rescue you, everything will be okay. And we have bought this lie, listen to me, we've bought this lie that if our political party, and I don't care what your party is, if our political party, and by extension us, have the power, then we're gonna be okay. We're gonna be safe, and fear can't touch us. But our hope, listen, listen, our hope is not in a political party. And it is not in a political system. Our hope is in Jesus. And he doesn't have some sort of political affiliation. It's not how he rules. 
Okay, he's not a Republican, he's not a Democrat, he's not a Libertarian, he's not a Greenpeace, I don't care what you fill in the blank, he ain't it. He is the king, and when he comes back, can I just say, he's not gonna be wearing a hat that says, make America great again, or a t-shirt that says, vote blue. He doesn't do political slogans except for his own, which is a tattoo that says, king of kings and lord of lords, period. He is our hope. Can I get an amen for that one? I mean, just, like, that was just, come on. <laughs> He's the king. Thank you. See, the idol of power, and that's what really what we're talking about. Anything we, we place our hope in to do what only God can do or to be who only God can be, that's an idol. And the idol of power, like any other idol, it's a liar. It will only take, and it will leave you bankrupt and broken. See, Ahaz put his hope in the wrong power, in the wrong king, and we do the same thing. Whenever we bow down, whenever we give our hope to someone who is not God to be God, and it will leave us bankrupt and broken just like Ahaz when we put our hope in the wrong king. The king of Assyria was the wrong king to hope in. King Ahaz, man, who would hope in that guy? He's the wrong king. Whatever kings we find in this world, they are the wrong king. But can I tell you something? There's another king in this passage. Yeah, there's another king. When Isaiah speaks of Emmanuel, there's another young woman, a virgin. And there's another birth, there's another child, there is another king. And this king, he is unlike any other king. There is another king who doesn't make a deal with the devil to save his own skin, but instead stares death in the face and doesn't blink. Oh yeah, there's another king. There's another king here who won't bankrupt you and leave you broken, but instead became bankrupt and broken for you. There, There is another king who doesn't leave you empty and destitute, but instead became destitute so that you can enjoy the riches of heaven. There is another king who has experienced and endured utter despair, hanging on a lonely cross, abandoned by heaven itself, so that you and I could have a hope that fear cannot defeat. There's another king. I get that it's... um, it's a scary world right now for many of us. It's funny, it gets scarier as you get older. But there's a lot to fear, I get it, I get it. You don't have to prove it to me with headlines. We had a, a, a drive-by shooting in our neighborhood last night, 14 gunshots. There's a lot to fear in this world, I get it. And it's tempting at times to think that that hope is just wistful thinking, that it's, it's uh, like a trick of the mind so that we just don't give up, just keep going. And there's so many voices around us all the time clamoring for our hope. Hope in me, hope in me, hope in me, and I will save you, I will rescue you, I get it. But in the midst of our fear, God asks a question. He says, do you want a sign? Do you want a sign so that you know how much I love you? Do you want a sign so that you know to put your hope in me and not anything else 
that's begging for your, for your hope? Do you, do you want a sign? How's this? There's a child born of a virgin and laid in a manger. And there's a star and shepherds and wise men, they come and they worship him. And he grows up and he, he does miracles. He makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. And he feeds the hungry and he casts out demons and he heals the sick. And then he takes the sins of the world, all of your sins, all of your regrets, everything, and he puts it on his own back and he gets on a cross and he dies. But it doesn't end there. He comes back to life. God says, do you, want a, do you want a sign? Do you want a sign of my perfect love? Man, forget the sun like a comet around the earth or a lightning bolt frozen in midair. Look at my resurrected son, Jesus. He is your sign. He is your hope. He is Emmanuel, our forever God with us. And when we hope in him, we'll never be disappointed. Never. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All power and glory to him and to him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, you are our hope. Forgive us when we make idols of other things because that's what misplaced hope is. It is idolatry. It is trusting in other things to be who only you can be. Lord, forgive us because we live in a world that you know all too well. You walked this earth and you know fear. You experienced fear beyond what most of us could ever even imagine. But you took all of that for us so that we could have hope. Lord, forgive us for listening to other voices. Remind us of your perfect love. Let it be a stronghold in our lives. Let it be a stake in our lives that gives a foothold to hope. And that this season, as we, as we go over these next few weeks in Advent, and we look forward to celebrating your birth, Lord, that hope would be real in us, and that it would shine forth beyond these walls. Lord, we love you. Thank you for how you love us. We pray all of this in your name, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.